It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. As the winter freeze sets in, we were told the war in Ukraine would be slowing down. But yesterday afternoon, a fresh wave of explosions shook the country. Breaking news in Ukraine where there are reports from the Ukrainian Air Force that Russia has launched another round of attacks. Ukrainian officials said over 100 missiles had hit regions across the country. Missiles have been fired from ships in the Black Sea. They fire one round of a lot of missiles, then fire other rounds to try and confuse Ukraine's air defenses here. It happened after two earlier explosions inside Russia. Explosions have reportedly hit a Russian airbase far from the Ukrainian border, damaging two long-range bombers. Unverified video of the blasts have been posted on a variety of Telegram channels. Even while both sides are throwing everything they've got at the wall, on Thursday night, President Biden appeared to offer an olive branch to Vladimir Putin. I'm prepared to speak with Mr. Putin if, in fact, there is an interest in him deciding he's looking for a way to end the war. He hasn't done that yet. If that's the case, in consultation with my French and my NATO friends, I'll be happy to sit down with Putin to see what he once has in mind. The Kremlin says it's ready for peace talks with America over the war in Ukraine, but it rejects Western terms for opening the negotiations. The Kremlin has dismissed comments by President Biden that he would be prepared to talk to Vladimir Putin if the Russian leader signaled that he was looking to end the war in Ukraine. So as Putin digs in for the winter, the West faces a choice. Either it has to summon the political will and public support to become an arsenal, supplying weapons in the fight for democracy, or it'll have to put pressure on Ukraine to make compromises. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, NATO's arms race with Putin.
I'm Roger Boys. I'm the diplomatic editor of The Times. I was foreign correspondent for 40 years. Roger is one of the most experienced foreign policy watchers at The Times. I do a weekly foreign policy column and other stuff too. He's been reflecting on images from the war's front line, monochrome fields pocked by craters and muddy dugouts. The most alarming are the scenes inside the trenches on that long Donbass border between Russian lines and Ukrainian lines. Ukrainian soldiers trudging through the splashing mire of the trenches. This is how it will be all winter, through rain and sleet and snow. They are really straight out of Wilfred Owen or Siegfried Sassoon. It's the same. It's the same as it was in the Somme and Passchendaele. It's terrifying. And the winter is approaching. But what makes it doubly, trebly worse is, of course, the rumble of artillery fire. It's becoming, just as it was in the First World War, a war of attrition the most mind-numbing war of attrition. If you take away the new technological elements like the drones, this is an extension of industrial warfare, the kind of warfare that we saw in the First World War and then got more and more sophisticated. And the casualties, it's difficult to tell because both are concealing the exact figures, both sides, mm. for various purposes. So the Russians, for a long time, didn't even mention casualties and then came up with a rather random figure of about 60,000. But the Americans reckon more than 100,000 have been killed in these last nine months. And on the Ukrainian side, there's been even more discretion. Paradoxically, they're a more open society than Russia, but they mm. know the casualty figures given in detail and authentically and give quite a lot of military information to the Russians so they don't say anything. They, of course, talk about civilian casualties. But again, the Americans estimate around 100,000. I mean, Roger, that's a, a huge death toll, really, in modern times. And it's now been nine months, nine months of gruelling warfare. Just give us a quick state of the war picture. I mean, you know, it, it wasn't long ago in, in November that Ukraine recaptured Kherson, and we talked about it at the time. The joys of Kherson's liberation keep on giving. <laughs> it was being talked about as being a turning point. This is the beginning of the, the end of the war. Do you think it was? What is the state of the war at the moment? It was certainly a psychological turning point. And also it sent a message to the Western supporters of Ukraine to show that the weapons that have been coming their way mm. have an effect and are game-changing, war-changing. That's key. That's something you've been writing about recently. Just explain to us, because a lot of the Ukrainian effort in this war wouldn't have been possible without weapons from Europe, from America, even from Turkey. Just give us a sense of how crucial they've been in supporting Ukraine in this war. It's gone in different phases because at the beginning, 
The Ukrainians said, help us. And the military establishments within NATO were very wary of this. First, because, of course, Ukraine's not a member of NATO, but also because they didn't want to provoke Russia. You may remember the first offer from Germany was 5,000 helmets, which was just laughable. And it's not just Germany that's been dragging its feet. At the beginning, really, anything that had the range or the precision to go into Russian territory and therefore perhaps provoke a Russian attack on NATO was regarded as an absolute no-no. Basically, the West was calculating on quite a quick Ukrainian capitulation and didn't really want to do anything that would encourage an all-out war in Europe. So there was this pacifist strain in different Western governments, notably in Germany, but not only. But this has changed over time, and it's changed partly because of Ukrainian skills and nimbleness on the battlefield, which have shown the West that there is a war that can be won, if not entirely on Ukrainian terms, then at least in a way that gives Russia a a bloody nose and perhaps speeds the departure of Putin. But what's happened in these nine months is a proper conversation has ensued at last between the fighters and the weapons suppliers. CNN is reporting that the U.S. is running low on advanced weapons and ammunition systems that have been critical to Ukraine's success on the battlefield. So far, we've spent $18.3 billion on the Ukraine war since February 24th. Now, that's going to definitely be going up. Soon-to-be Speaker McCarthy has said he won't give Ukraine a blink check. As things escalate, what do you think is the best approach? We've given them a lot of money, but until there's a full accounting, I don't think there's going to be a lot of support from Republicans. Now, it is true that some of the Western instructors have been worried about the over-enthusiasm of the Ukrainians for using this kit because they have no real sense of how much it all costs. So Um, they're worried they're they're uh, trigger-happy. Yeah. Yeah. I've talked to one instructor who said what I have to tell them is that every time you use one of these missiles to shoot down a drone, you're essentially throwing into the air and destroying a Porsche. Yeah. The same cost. Wow. What it costs. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> it does the put drone it into context. 20, yeah. And the drone they're destroying costs $20,000. Yeah. And maybe even less if they've got it for a bargain deal from Iran or whatever. Because they're fighting to save their country, the costs that are being imposed on defense institutions and establishments in the West isn't really taken into their calculation. But the West is getting a little bit, it'll be wary about this because it's draining the arms stocks, uh, the rather expensive arms stocks of the West. And that's, you know, a key part of where the debate is now. In your piece, you've written about a German word from the First World War that we should probably all be relearning, we should be thinking about. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, the word you're thinking of is Materialschlacht, which just means what it says, really. (laughs) (laughs) A Schlacht is a battle and Material is material, but when generals talk about material or Materiel, they mean weaponry. So it's a battle of technologies is how... First World War generals saw it, and this is increasingly what this has become. Yeah. So Mm. because 
we're giving them high tech and the Russians don't have high tech, it looks like it's a battle of industrial development, really. Even with all these apparent weaknesses of the Russian army, they can still summon up mass. And sometimes yeah. mass beats quality. And that's what we're seeing now. And the Russian economy has its strengths in that respect. It can create a war economy quite fast. And so with all of our fancy gear that we're giving to the Ukrainians and with all the bravery of the Ukrainians, the Russians might still win out. Do we have a sense of how much ammunition both sides have got through, how much they're using? Because yes. just to get a sense of how much they might have left, give us a sense of how much they're using on a daily basis and whether we think stocks are being depleted on both sides. On the Ukrainian side... They have the stocks we give them, but there's not a really a functioning arms industry in Ukraine at the moment. So the stocks that we're talking about are NATO stocks. And the Americans are the ones who are carrying the biggest burden of it because they had the biggest stocks. We, we, because we fought war differently after 9-11, we needed different kinds of weapons. We needed armored personnel carriers that wouldn't be immediately disabled if they ran onto a IED. We needed drones. Those were the boom years for drone development. We didn't need masses of ammunition. But now we find ourselves with very depleted stocks. I must say that Donbass isn't the only front line in Ukraine, but there's more bullets flying through the air than any other front at the moment anyway. And typically on a day, Ukrainians would get through six to 7,000 artillery shells, and the Russians would get through three times as much as that. But, and here's the killer statistic, America produces only 15,000 artillery rounds every month. So it's a bit of a crude comparison, but in two days or three days of hectic fighting in Ukraine, you've gone through the whole of American artillery shell production for a month. Wow. So you then immediately draw, you have to draw on the reserves, yeah, whatever stockpiles you've got. And those are diminishing massively. The Russians, meanwhile, have, as I say, been using uh, much more. And this is in the nature of war that the attacking force has to use more artillery and more infantry fire. Because by definition, it has to make progress, yeah? It has to push the defenders back. And there are different restraints on this. One is the raw material and the electronics that it needs to make its weaponry. And the answer is, it's difficult. Hmm. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. It's difficult because of sanctions. That's why it's having to talk to Iran and North Korea, basically pariah countries, to help out. And Roger, just give us a sense, how much help do the Ukrainians need now? You know, are they running out of weapons? They've clearly had to burn through quite a lot just to get to where we are. But how reliant are they on help? And if they don't get it, if people are having the conversations that you began to describe there, if people are worried about giving them more, what would that mean for their chances in this war? Well, it partly hinges on what Putin is going to do next. The assumption is there's going to be some kind of lull, yeah? Mm. Because Caused determined by, the weather. by weather, yeah. A literal freeze in the war. Yes. So, I mean, people are assuming, or maybe some would say hoping, that it will just quieten down for a while, while ammunition stocks are built up, 
Mm. While, from the Russian point of view, while their reservists get trained up so that they're proper soldiers and not just middle-aged men or farmers or something who really don't know one end of a gun from another. And supply chains are put in place. The threat changes shape as the war progresses. One theory, for example, is that Russian troops that have now withdrawn from Kherson, they will go to the north and join up with Belarusian support units and these 300 to 400,000 reservists that were called up a few months ago. One theory for the way this war is going to evolve is that force will then besiege Kiev. And people called this idea Operation Uranus II. Operation Uranus was a ploy in the Battle of Stalingrad, which surrounded Stalingrad in the Second World War, and basically smashed the German Sixth Army who were in the city. It's what Putin failed to do at the beginning, which helped trash his reputation as a great military commander. But this would be a way of ending the war on Russian terms. So Ukraine has to look at what possible scenarios face them. And if that's the most threatening and the most realistic, then they need masses of air defense. And this is what they're asking for. But nobody knows quite where Putin's going to really attack next. Coming up, could Russia still win the war? That's in just a moment. I'm Mehreen Khan, economics editor of The Times. My job involves covering an extraordinary period for the world and UK economy, where central bankers and governments are contending with runaway inflation, the pandemic and a war in Europe. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Roger, in terms of Europe and the West re-kitting up and trying to commission more weapons very quickly, they're coming up against problems too, aren't they, in terms of raw materials. Tell us a bit about that. We had a crisis or a number of interlocking crises about raw materials long before this war began. Partly it was to do with China's very rapid growth and it was gobbling up basically all sorts of things. And now there are just various chemicals and various metals. So aluminium, platinum, palladium, rhodium. These are all metals you need to make weapons. Some of them are unfortunately mined and developed in Russia itself. And of course, we don't do business with Russia. And the same with China. The basic materials you need to produce ballistic resistant vests comes from China. So where does that leave us? Becoming dependent on China for bulletproof vests? So you can see how tangled this all is, but you can also see why the prices are rising massively for this kind of basic stuff and how expensive it's become to replenish our arsenals. And so our options are beginning to dwindle. We're already becoming more vulnerable, but countries on the eastern flank of NATO, the Baltic states, Poland, and so on, they feel particularly vulnerable because one of the lessons they draw from the Ukraine war is that maybe they're next. Yeah. yeah. So people are there are saying, what are we doing giving away all our stock to Ukraine? We're going to need it ourselves. So there are tensions all, all the time and they're, they're not anti-Ukrainian or anything like that. And it's more a recognition that Russia has become a different kind of enemy. Yeah. And one that threatens us and not just Ukraine. So that's a two-tier threat. The first threat is to keep Ukraine intact and alive. And the second threat is to ensure that if Putin fabricates another conflict between minorities or over frontiers elsewhere in Europe, we have the capacity to deal with it. And at the moment, we're losing that wiggle room. So people are really nervous about this. And it is a matter of choosing how much and how long we can fight. And it's absolutely essential for Ukraine, but actually almost existential for NATO too. If it can't deter through conventional forces and conventional warfare with all our sophisticated tech, mm. then what's left? Then you're, you're, you're having to talk about nuclear deterrence and a more dangerous world. Let's look at the Russian perspective on this. You've written that there was a moment in September that really shifted 
Putin's thinking. Well, it's being described as a possible turning point in the war in Ukraine. The sweeping Ukrainian counteroffensive has driven Russian forces out of dozens of communities in eastern Ukraine. Tell us about the Ukrainian counteroffensive on Kharkiv and how that changed the shape of the war. Yes, Kharkiv was important because Ukrainian generals carried out a rather sophisticated feint. They bluffed they were going to do one thing and then suddenly saw a gap around Kharkiv, which is very close to the Russian border and was essentially being turned into Russian domain bit by bit. So there was that sense that, oh my God, we've lost Kharkiv. Yeah. When the Ukrainian forces came, we honestly didn't expect it. When I saw our Ukrainian soldiers with those patches, with the Ukrainian flag, oh, it was great. Great. So it was an important psychological moment. Anyway, the interesting thing about the campaign was how it so quickly demoralized the Russians. They ran for it. They essentially deserted their positions. It wasn't an orderly withdrawal. And when Putin got wind of this, he flew into a rage, basically. But it was more than that. He saw that what was needed was to meet uh, Ukrainian weaponry with increased Russian weaponry and increased men. So two things happened then. One was that he called in heads of the arms industry mm. and changed the uh, pace of production so that he actually had three shift days. So the defense industry is suddenly working literally on overtime. You've got yeah, three yeah. shifts through the night, through the day. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Constantly and producing more ammunition, more weapons. That's right. I mean, the Germans reached this in the Second World War. They reached the situation and they, in the end, they could only do it really with slave labor. It was the only way of getting that kind of output. So how the Russians are doing it, I don't know. Does it just sort of show that they were slightly caught off guard, oddly, given that they, they invaded Ukraine, but they were slightly caught off guard by the war? Yes, I've been arguing this for quite a long time. I, I think Putin didn't prepare for it in, in, in the way that, for example, Hitler did when he planned to invade Poland in 1939 for a long time beforehand. He was looking at ammunition levels, recruitments, military exercises. He was working according to a plan. Yeah. Mm. Now, Putin didn't go through that process. He didn't say, are we ready? Yeah. Are we ready for an escalation? Is that because he assumed it would be easier? Yeah. And Roger, having started off on a back foot because they hadn't quite clearly taken into account the sort of resistance they would meet, they clearly hadn't planned anywhere near well enough for what was coming. Are we now in a situation where Putin could still win? What does the, the, the future look like? And what would that look like? Will it come down to the arms that, that either side has? It's quite complex. What is Putin ready to accept? as being a victory, the truth is it's unlikely to happen. And even if he, for example, laid siege to Kiev, it would be really just to maximize his bargaining abilities ahead of a settlement. I don't think it would be sustainable for the Russian army to turn into a Russian occupation army over a long time, and that's really what you would need. So what would Russia want? Maybe some carve-outs then in, in Donbass. He would probably 
almost certainly want to retain a great deal of Crimea, and he'd want a friendly government in Kiev. Yeah, he'd want a pro-Russian government somehow in Kiev. So there are two questions then, aren't there? There's one question is, would the West allow that? And the second question is, what do we consider to be a victory? There's disagreement within the different alliances that make up the West. And then there's the third thing, which is, what does Ukraine accept? And Ukraine wants an intact country, but maybe it can't have everything it wants. It's a tricky moment because maybe the West will be pushed into a position where, because of its internal differences, then persuades Ukraine to accept an imperfect solution. And despite the blood that's been spilled, accept some kind of shared sovereignty over parts of eastern Ukraine. So it's actually more tricky for us than for Putin. You've got a lot of countries, Germany, Italy, quite a lot of countries who would who'd be willing to settle in some way. So do we overrule these countries? Do we try and work out something between them? For example, do we accept the German premise that all war is bad and therefore the quicker we end this, the better? And how do we retain authority in the world as a democratic axis if we let down Ukraine? So the big complex decisions are facing us. Yeah? And basically um, the future of democracy on the line. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yes, that sounds very supermanish, you know, but, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> but it, it is about that. And it's about US leadership too. Whether we accept the US leadership and whether the impatience of a Biden administration out trumps all the basic democratic instincts. It's going to be a terrible upheaval for the West. The differences we're seeing at the moment and the arguments about this kind of missile and this kind of support will be nothing compared to the catfight that democracies are going to have when we come closer to some kind of end of war settlement. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times diplomatic editor, Roger Boys. You can find all of Roger's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription, or read his columns in the print edition on Wednesdays. The producer today was James Shield. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this episode please do leave us a review it'll help others to find it thanks for listening see you tomorrow hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.